Hello, and welcome to another episode of the TPI podcast, To Think Minimum. Today, we're going to continue our conversation with guests and panelists from our recent conference on artificial intelligence entitled Terminator or the Jetsons, the Economics and Policy Implications of Artificial Intelligence. Today, we are speaking with Emilio Colombo, who is with the Catholic University in Milan, and I am not going to try and say it in Italian because I would butcher it, um, who will talk about uh, applying machine learning tools on web vacancies for labor market and skill analysis. I did not come up with that on my own. That was the name of the paper that he presented at the AI conference. And we will be joined as well by Sarah O, oh, Research Fellow at the Technology Policy Institute, and Scott Walston, President and Senior Fellow at TPI. So I will hand it over to them to get this conversation started. Amelia, we're thrilled to have you here. Tell us a little bit about the uh, research that you presented yesterday. The, the main idea here is that uh, there are some very strong forces that are affecting the labor market. Um, we are all worried about uh, jobs that are disappearing. <clears throat> but actually what is, what is really happening is that uh, although some jobs are actually disappearing and new jobs will be created in the future uh, or are being created, probably the main effect that technology has is to change the way existing jobs are, are performed. It changes the, the skills that existing jobs um, acquire. So um, we started to look into this issue and uh, actually we, re we realized that the tools that as economists we use to analyze the change that is occurring in the, in, in the labor market uh, are not entirely appropriate because most of the tools uh, are not aimed at analyzing the change, they are actually aimed at analyzing you know, the, the kind of stock. Mm -hmm. Think of the labor force survey. The labor force survey, which is the main tool that uh, we have in economics for analyzing the labor market, ex you know, it looks at, it makes us a kind of photograph of what's going on in the market. But it's not really looking at the change that is happening. In particular, is the labor force survey is, is not focused uh, on skills and on skills requirement by jobs. So this, this change that is happening now in the labor market is so fast uh, we wanted to have a tool, we wanted to look at a tool that was able to deliver some kind of real-time data and so we started to look at uh, the, the, the information content of vacancies which are posted on the web. So, so I should, before you go on, I just want to interrupt and say that you know, one of the things that's so interesting about this is that you know, you start from the premise that we're worried about the changing labor markets because of machine learning and artificial intelligence and so you're actually using those very tools to try to predict what's going to happen to the labor market. <laughs> sort exactly. of an interesting twist. You know, those tools are really useful mm -hmm. because the, 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 the main problem in this case is that uh, you have a huge amount of data. So you need to cope with this data. You need to scrape the data from the web. And then one of the major challenges that this data is totally unstructured because vacancies are typically, you know, the, the, think of the title of the vacancy. The title of the vacancy is basically title in, a, in natural language of what uh, the firm is, you know, requiring or what the web portal is actually posting. Uh, it is not classified into the standard classification of like the SOC in the mm -hmm. US. And the, same and the same applies to the content of the vacancy. The content of the vacancy is simply a, a piece of text. And because you have so, 
so many thousands and millions of those vacancies, you cannot classify those things by hand. So you need to have a machine to do it. And we are fortunate because, you know, there are a lot of advanced in uh, uh, text, textual analysis. I'm actually collaborating with a lot of computer scientists, uh, which are designing the softwares to scrape, classify, and uh, analyze the text. It's really a, a big effort because it takes uh, a lot of expertise to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, but then when you have the machine that is running, then you have a system that is able to analyze millions and millions of observations basically every day. It's just a matter of basically computing power, which we know that now are, is, is cheap in a way. So uh, this is a tool that is actually able to tell what firms are requiring basically every day. And if you look at what is happening in each occupation, then you can analyze what kind of skills they require in each occupation. And they, and you know, firms are very detailed in their demand. Because for instance, if they, particularly when you are looking for a technical job, then they typically mention the technique that is needed, the software that is that, that they want to, to be used. Or so you can identify the sort of the type of job that's being advertised and the exact skills that exactly. the employer wants to go along exactly. with that. Exactly. And um, and you know you you can actually add then uh, the, the place where the job is uh, posted, basically at the mm -hmm. town level. So you can actually also have some kind of information about uh, where some jobs are posted, uh, where some skills are required, uh, the kind of education which is required. Some very often firms require some years of experience. And again, this is, a, this is relevant. At the end of the day, you have a very, very granular, granular type of information, which is very useful and has a lot of potential applications. So for instance, Think of somebody entering the labor market, somebody has some skills, you know, by using, you know, by plugging the skills in, into these tools, he or she can have the type of job that, uh, you know, for which those skills are mostly required. Or this, this kind of information is very useful for, for the education sector. Typically, when you need to design a course, which is particularly uh, aimed at the labor market, so tailored for the labor market, typically uh, postgraduate courses, masters, uh, executive uh, education, these kind of things. You need to be fine-tuned with what the labor market is actually requiring, requiring right now. And uh, those tools are able to tell you what kind of skills the market requires for certain type of jobs. So it seems like there are a couple of, um, <clears throat> a couple of things. One is, in, in principle, you can get a more precise picture of what the labor market looks like right now, which is what Halvarian called predicting the present. But then you, you also want to use it to predict what types of skills are going to be in demand at some point in the future. Is that true? Yes, uh -huh. yes. And what, what sorts of things are you finding? So well, I mean, I know you're at the beginning. Um, yeah, so. no, I mean, uh, um, what we are f finding is, uh, first, uh, one of the things that really struck us was that uh, how widespread is the, the need for what, what we call soft skills. And, and it was... Tell us what soft skills I mean, means. soft skills are basically kind of transversal skills uh, that basically are competence that mm -hmm. enable individuals to interact with the others and with the environment. 
like uh, ability to communicate, uh, problem solving. Uh, but you know, the, 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 the interesting thing is that uh, soft skills are hugely required, uh, even on technical jobs. And that was a surprise for us because, you know, you can imagine that you need to have a lot of soft skills when you are working with a lot of people, like you know, my doctor needs to have some, some, uh, a lot of soft skills because he's interacting with patients every day. But, uh, but not necessarily those skills should be required by a programmer mm -hmm. or by a computer specialist, but they are required. Which is so, also we, so we have this idea that you can, if you want, you, uh, as a programmer, you can just sit and never interact exactly. with anybody. The idea of a nerd, right? right exactly. <laughs> but that turns out to not be no. true. <laughs> no, no. You know, on the one hand, this is because now this kind of technology is so pervasive mm -hmm. that these jobs uh, are required in different fields. So you need to interact with a lot of other, other individuals. But you know, but but I think this also telling us something about the way we we are designing our educational system because we need to develop these kind of skills because they are incredibly important okay in in terms of uh, the, the changing nature of the job uh, yesterday there was this uh, discussion about uh, these bank tellers which were predicted when mm -hmm. the the advent of the ATM which was the technological revolution at that time uh, to disappear in the future actually on the contrary they uh, increased in number that they were requested uh, more but the problem is that if you look at the job of a bank teller now is he's he or she is not counting money anymore she's interacting with clients which means mm -hmm. that what is needed is a much larger set of social skills than on technical skills so I mean this this almost um it, it suggests kind of uh, policies that are different from what we often hear I mean we often hear that uh, you know, policymakers want more coders and programmers, but that's not what you're saying, right? I mean, the things that will dif that really differentiate us from uh, ultimately from a, from a machine is that we can interact with each other. Absolutely, yes. I mean, um, technical skills are certainly important, mm -hmm. but but they they cannot define the entire kind of skill set of an individual because. Well, on the one hand, because this is going to be risky, because uh, very, very soon your technical skills will be outdated. And we, 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 we observe this, that, you know, the, the, the pace of technology is so fast that... I, I observed this as soon as Sarah came to work here. Mine were instantly outdated. Exactly. Um, so this God, is... You don't know R? <laughs> no, I mean, this is, this, is, this is the kind of usual observation that we all have. Um, but, but then... How can you cope with this? Well, you start to interact with Sarah, probably, mm -hmm. right? So the, the, the ability to work with the others, uh, which, was, which means also that you need to be able, uh, you need to, you know, if you think of a kind of career, when you are young, uh, you implement your skills, uh, and et cetera. But when you, you, you become older, you need to develop other type of skills because you, I, I cannot compete with, for instance, in my case, I cannot compete in terms of uh, technical knowledge with my students mm -hmm. because they know much more of the new skills that I know, okay? But what I can do, I, I can start to coordinate the work of others. I can, because I have more experience, or I have more vision, so I can, you know, uh, use my skills in a, different, in a different way. But then, you know, I'm using a lot of interpersonal skills. Right, and it's also, I mean, another part of yesterday's uh, conference with where there were some papers on prediction versus judgment and how the improved prediction didn't mean the end of judgment but makes it more important and 
I mean, I think that's partly what you're saying. You have the judgment. Exactly. And you know, the newer people have, they have the skills, but not yet the judgment. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, judgment is going to be very, very important. But uh, again, judgment is not only something that comes out of a kind of technical education. It's it's also related a lot with experience. Uh, yeah. and, and, uh, and you develop this over time. As a junior economist, I would definitely say that experience you can tell the difference between someone more senior and junior like oh i've i've been down that road don't go down that road it's a waste of time on research yeah or even like um i've been to these conferences and i've heard all these papers um those are things that you can't you need time and experience um, to gain that judgment at least in collaborative fields like research where you Absolutely. can't do research um like a robot it is a group effort. Um, you're learning from senior researchers and advancing um, the literature. Well, I mean, if, if you, you can tell this simply by looking at the number of names that appears on, on papers. Uh, when, I st I, when I actually started, uh, the majority of the papers were either written by only one person or a couple of persons. Now, because, you know, uh, now there are more than three, four, but because this is because the research effort is much more complex. You are mixing different techniques, uh, different expertise, and... Yeah, it is, it is amazing to see that, because, I mean, you used to, I mean, everyone had to have single author papers, because otherwise, how would you know what they are? But now, papers have, papers have multiple authors. And of course, as somebody whose last name begins with a W, I've become increasingly worried about this, as my name ends up at the very end. Well, I mean, uh, okay, uh, it, it really I'm depends joking. on... No, no, I, I, no, I mean, in, in my country, we had this kind of... Uh, not, some, until a few years ago, we had this rule that uh, you need to specify, you know, basically the kind of authorship, if it was a multiple author paper, <laughs> the authorship for each paragraph, basically, okay? So it was... Wow. wow. It, because, the, you know, because they needed, they needed to tell, you know, who had written what, what part of it. Luckily now, you know, there is a kind of common understanding that uh, you tend to put names in alphabetical orders and, uh, you know, that, that, that's it. So, so it's, uh, I think it's fair, unless there is somebody that is really uh, doing, uh, that, had that has done a larger share of, uh, of the work and this has to be acknowledged. But yeah, generally, that's the way it's, it's a collective effort. And um, the, you know, the, the hard sciences, uh, you know, that have multiple people working in a lab. They usually have the, you know, the, the principal, the PI, principal investigator at the front first, and then the other 35 people. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, going back to your, uh, to your paper and your work on looking at the, how the labor market's developing, have you been interacting with people at the you know, various government agencies that are charged with doing this now. I mean, here it's the Bureau of Labor Statistics. I assume you have an analog. Yeah, yeah. Actually, what we what we are doing now, we are um, kind of scaling up uh, our research project at the European level. We won uh, last year uh, an open tender by uh, an European agency, which which is Sedefop, that wanted to set up real time labor market uh, information tool for the European Union. And, um, and they wanted to use the information content of web vacancies to do this. Now, as you can imagine, this is, there is a big complication in all this, uh, that we need to, to, to do this in, in a multi-language setting. 
because in Europe we have lots of different languages. Actually, you even have some countries that are using different languages within the same country. So we are now developing, extending this tool to the entire European Union, working with uh, experts in each European country. And we are setting up this system. I mean, uh, at the end of this year, we will have uh, the system hopefully uh, scaled up to seven countries that the major countries, Italy, France, Germany, Spain, the UK, uh, the Czech Republic, so that we will cover more or less uh, two-thirds of the EU population. So this, this might be a, an ignorant question, but there are standard training data sets uh, for uh, textual analysis and anything else. Does it become less precise with languages that are spoken less, uh, that are less common? I mean, are there the same kind of training um, data sets available for well, any actually, language you need? It, it, so. it, uh, it really depends on the, on the training set. Mm -hmm. But then again, it depends on, on the type of country. So for instance, uh, um, the Czech Republic has has an horrible language for, 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 for us. I mean, it's, it was, it was totally, you know, it's, it's like Chinese in a way. Um, but the Czech Republic has a fantastic tool. They have the public, this is the, the kind of beauty of uh, small countries. Uh, they have a, the public uh, website, uh, which is posted in the vacancy, that already classifies the vacancy oh. into a standard classification. So this provides a training set uh, which is very large and uh, very good. So, you know, in, the case, in, the, in fact, in the case of the Czech Republic, we reached almost 100% uh, accuracy, which, which well, is amazing. Ah. It's amazing, but this is because of, the, of this training set. In other countries, you know, the, the, the percentage are, 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 are not so high, but then we are working with experts uh, validating uh, the tool. The, 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 the beauty of, of this kind of approach is that you start doing this uh, and, and then you get a sort of uh, a percentage of correct uh, matches. But then you, can, you need to simply work on the margin, right? You don't need to reclassify everything because uh, you, you need to work on the error which makes life easier. And over time, the system improves because the machine learns, learns you know, on, on, on the mistakes as well. So you know, over time, uh, the, the more information you get, uh, the more the system becomes precise. So it, it will improve uh, over time. And th this, is, this is interesting. And then the other, the other nice thing is that uh, because the information is always there, even if you are making some mistakes, you can also always reclassify information that you previously misclassified because you know you can always go back to the information that you, that you retrieved. And and again, this is something that is that makes the tool very useful because, for instance, on the contrary, suppose you are uh, analyzing this thing, uh, these things through a survey. If you are making a mistake in the survey, then then. You did it, uh, and you cannot cancel it. Uh, cancel it because once you're running a survey, that's it. Uh, so, under this point of view, this is this is really useful. For the historical analog, would the EU do surveys of labor em uh, employers? Is that before this kind of machine learning scraping? Well, actually, where where do you get employer data on skills? In some countries, there are skilled surveys. Few countries, the 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 EU the, through this agency uh, tried to to do a sort of pan-European uh, skill survey, but it proved to be too costly, because if you want, 
if if you wanted to be so uh, precise and um, widespread, uh, it, be, it, be, it is too costly. And repeated. And repeated. It, it, be, it is too costly. Also, you know, not not only considering the, the direct cost of uh, implementing the survey, but you are actually taking the time to an entrepreneur, and the time is money for him. So if you take into account, uh, as economists, uh, we need to take into account the opportunity cost, and the opportunity cost of the survey is higher than the data cost of it. So the survey is really costly. So software like this machine learning program that scrapes millions of job listings across countries is um, a big step forward for labor market analysis. That, that's a yes. huge step. Absolutely, yes. Uh, it has some limits, clearly, because lots of some, some jobs are simply not on the web, because you, know, you, cannot, you can analyze only the jobs that are actually are on the web. But a large part of the jobs are actually posted on the web. made a surprising, well, I thought it was a surprising point about that yesterday. I mean, because bias in terms of what types of jobs are there, you were concerned that it might bias the results, too, in, in, in other ways. But it didn't seem to. Uh, can you explain uh, well, that? actually, it, it, in a way, it actually depends on what what are your aims. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, if you want to measure the number of vacancies that are, that are in a country, then clearly you have a biased estimate because you're not measuring something. Mm -hmm. But, for instance, the vacancy survey is one of the major tools that are used by policymakers to measure uh, labor market tightness. But in order to measure the ma labor market tightness, uh, you need to have a sort of, you need to look at how the condition in labor market change. You not necessarily need uh, uh, a representative sample of the population. Okay? In fact, the Fed uses now two measures of, the, the, of vacancy. One is the vacancy survey, mm -hmm. and another one is an index from online vacancies. Because even a non-representative sample can be a good predictor of the change in, uh, in the labor market and can predict uh, a representative sample, basically. So under this point of view, you know, if you really want to count the vacancies, this is certainly biased. But if you want to derive measure of market tightness, for instance, they are OK. Do you have uh, any sense of whether one is more accurate than, than the other? Well, we're working hard on this because <laughs> the, 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 uh, uh, w one of the problems that we have in, uh, in Europe is that for several countries, the vacancy survey is compulsory because this is, you know, the vacancy rate is one of the key indicators that the ECB as any central bank uses for assessing labor market tightness. So every country is running a vacancy survey. But funnily enough, lots of countries are not publishing the number of the vacancies. They, they only publish the vacancy rate, which is... <laughs> why do they... Why do, why they, do they say that this, this is reserved information. Like somebody might be able to figure out the population of the country? Well, actually, yeah, but you know, it, it actually makes a, it can make a big difference depending on the type of the... the, the if they were to disaggregate it. Exactly. So, so for instance, in our case, uh, this, is, this is a problem because we would like to know whether and to what extent our measure differ from official measure, but we can do this only in few countries. Hmm. And even talking, the, the, the funny thing is that uh, we are now starting, uh, given that we are work doing this job for uh, the European Union, now we started to have a collaboration with Eurostat. 
and we were, were working with a lot of uh, statistical officers uh, around Europe uh, and despite the fact that we're collaborating with them uh, they still you know they have the internal policy of data protection they don't want to disclose the data on the number of vacancies so it's <laughs> in a way it's really so even as a researcher you can't sort of sign a non-disclosure no wow no it's like it's you know uh, that's this is this in a way this is a limit that statistical officers have in at least in Europe they had this they had this kind of approach like uh, in order to be reliable the data has to be produced by themselves mm -hmm. and by nobody else but the problem is that th th this this could be uh, an option uh, viable if if you look at standard data but when you when you start using data which are produced by techniques uh, of computer scientists for instance like like in this case in order to produce this data, they will need to hire computer scientists and they don't have the budget to do this. Mm -hmm. So in a way, they are struck by this because they cannot produce the data by themselves. But on the other hand, they don't want to collaborate with others because they are limited by their data protection uh, policy, so which is weird in a way. Yeah, I, so they're kind of stuck. They can't... Well, actually, uh, some in some European countries, for instance, take, take the, the, the simple... Uh, scraping of the data okay now the scraping of the data is is not illegal but mm -hmm. because there is no law against it because we are simply taking the data which which is published on the web so it's like you know looking at something right, right. Uh, and using a machine people, they want people to see exactly yeah. um, but still because we are doing this as a part of European project we are still informing the websites what we are doing and uh, we are asking whether they are willing to give us a backdoor access so we don't slow their system and whatever so we, we try to be as open and as uh, transparent as possible even though there are lots of companies that are doing this as a job and they simply scrape the, the, the web uh, without problems but the funny thing is that for several statistical offices they actually started this kind of approach but in order to use the data they need a written concept, mm. which basically means that they cannot. <laughs> the, 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 you know. They have written consent from everybody who posted something exactly. on the internet. <laughs> exactly. So you know, because we tend to live in a world where, we, if something is 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 not prohibited, then then you tend to assume that it is allowed. Right. Uh, but they are so worried about this data protection thing that they simply don't use the data at the end. Hmm. So it seems like. Their, uh, their measures, their indices, are going to become increasingly worse relative to what else is out there. I mean, even if, even if you don't want to say yet that yours is better, no, no, it will no, be. it's, that, that, that's true. I mean, I think uh, in, in this kind of issues, you need to be pragmatic. Mm -hmm. There are universities, for instance, which would be willing to cooperate with statistical officers. So why not? I mean, in a way, we, we, we are starting a collaboration. We'll see how, how this will... Uh, will develop. Also, you need to take into account the fact that uh, statistical offices in general are terribly underfunded, at, at least at least in Europe. I think that's true everywhere. Which which is a shame because um, the world is changing so fast. We need more information, not less information. And because the world changes so fast, we need up to date information, real time information. So you need to develop different tools, different methods, uh, and you, you need to be open on, on this. And I've found, I don't know about in Europe, but, uh, you know, people that I've interacted with at BLS and BEA, they love what they do. And you know, if they had more resources, 
They would do a lot of interesting Absolutely, things. yes. I mean, uh, the, the, the people in these offices are, are, are very smart and very good and uh, you know, with more resources that would certainly produce much, much better uh, results. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we hope that uh, you know, in the next month uh, we will uh, improve our collaboration, so maybe something more will be added to the knowledge. Uh, at the end of mm -hmm. this project, uh, the idea is that uh, th this project will end by 2020. Uh, and, but at the end of it, uh, everything will be made available to the research community. So the data will be made available, but also the programs, because uh, we, we are doing everything in open source, and uh, uh, everything will be released. Uh, then, then you know this is going to depend on, on on the choices of the agency. But at the end, the, the idea is to have a portal where this data is available to everybody. Are you going to try to um, post? The code in some open source way along along the way, or do you want to make sure it's a? You know, no, no, no. We will we will we will need to finish everything and mm -hmm. then post the code. Mm -hmm. Although we are also collaborating with other universities as well, so you know it, we do this as a part of our research. I I'm less involved in this technical part because I'm an economist, but right. my colleagues, computer scientists, are working this as a part of their own agenda, research agenda, and so they're collaborating with others because over time new techniques become available and uh, they they try different tools uh, and uh, it's so always a kind of evolving thing. Well, that, that actually raises I mean another point we were talking about earlier that it's it, that it's interdisciplinary, yeah. and so when you're working with you're working with computer scientists. How do you do it? What's your so? What's your role as the economist? <laughs> it's funny because they, they they provide the tool and say, okay, let's this is done. <laughs> this is a paper, <laughs> and then I say, look, you know, this is not a paper for me because it's a paper, it's a paper for you because you developed the tool. But I need to get this tool to answer a specific and interesting question. <laughs> Otherwise, for me, it's not a paper. So this is uh, this is you know and, and this this point of view it's 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 nice because I discover some incredible tools in a way, but my job is basically to take these tools and to use this tool to address the proper question because for an economist what is relevant is an interesting question to be addressed and to be so a problem to be solved. For them the problem is more technical. That is, I have this kind of data. How can I extract information from this kind of data? In my case, my problem is, you know, what can I do with this information? What kind of question I can address? What kind of problem I can solve? That seems like that's actually a pretty a deep problem for economists, and I assume other researchers as well. That you know, machine learning identifies these correlations, but we like to start with the hypothesis. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, it is also interesting because you know, without the knowledge of these kind of tools, uh, I wouldn't think of some problems. Right. And actually. More, if you think of this issue more generally, there are lots of puzzles that we have in economics that basically things that with our existing tools uh, we are not able to address. And, uh, you know, we, we need to try something else mm -hmm. by definition because if, if, if our theories are not good enough, then we can actually use those tools. Uh, again, the tools are not the theory themselves because the tools are simply discovering some correlation. But these are useful also to develop to, to, to change the theory because uh, if you know that if you have a theory you know that it doesn't work, then you you implement those tools and you discover some new kind of correlation. Then you need to go back and to think 
differently of the relationship and maybe change the theory or evolve the theory. Right, they certainly made um, new approaches possible and new data available yeah, too. Yeah, absolutely, yes. So thanks so much for um, coming by and talking with us. Oh, it's this been really a pleasure. And thanks for uh, coming all the way to the conference and everything. Very much enjoyed talking to you.